Um, as an example, I had a real-life example of this. I was uh, out with a new friend several months ago that I met at a toddler birthday party, and he and I got together and went out, and uh, we got to talking about things. And when my vocation came up, um, he was a bit surprised at what I did for a living. Um, and inevitably, the conversation went um, into things spiritual and religious when he found out that I was a priest. And um, he made it very clear from the start that he was not in any way religious, um, but he was a very spiritual person, very open to spirituality, but he was not religious. He had very bad experience in the church growing up, and a uh, college course on the Old Testament from a secular historical perspective really shattered his faith. And we had some really good conversations, um, but his ultimate conclusion was that truth is really what a person feels that it is inside, uh, which is to say that it's subjective, it's merely what we feel that it is, and that everyone is kind of allowed to have their version of the truth based on uh, what they think is right and objectively true. And um, his conclusion, of course, was that it's the same with religion, that um, it's fine to follow Jesus. That's fine if that works for you, but it's also fine if you get, if you connect to God through Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or any other spiritual path. And, um, we got deeply, it was a very lighthearted and, and, uh, charitable conversation, but there was much disagreement. And, um, I was trying to make this point to him over and over through the night that truth by nature is exclusive. Here's what I mean by that. When you make a truth claim, you, you by nature, by default, exclude its opposite. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If I said to you, if you said to me, I believe that that pulpit is made out of wood, that pulpit is wood, that is the truth. And I said, no, I believe that that pulpit is made out of steel, which is to say that pulpit is made out of not wood. Both of those claims cannot be true. Because they are contradictory. Do you see what I mean? Truth is exclusive. It excludes what is false when you make a truth statement. Now, you have to apply this principle uh, in the same way to religious claims to truth. You see, if Buddhism is true, Christianity is false. If Buddhism is true, Christianity is objectively false. Let me explain why. Buddhism makes fundamental claims that... There is really no such thing as a personal God. God, if you want to use that term, is really an impersonal, eternal force. But there's no such thing as a personal God. And uh, there's, no, there's certainly no such thing as a personal God who holds people accountable for their actions and who loves them and has acted in the person of Jesus to redeem them from their sins. You see, they're fundamentally different at their core. If you hear someone say, all religions are pretty much fundamentally the same, they just have some superficial differences, no, it's the other way around. World religions are different at their core, fundamentally. They all make different claims to the truth, and their, their uh, likenesses or their similarities are superficial at best. Now, uh, and, and in fact, just a little historical snippet, the Buddha who developed uh, the teachings of Buddhism actually turned his back on Hindu teaching, was raised in an Indian caste, uh, turned his back on the Hindu faith of his parents and rejected it as false to develop his own thing. So even in a, even in a uh, religious worldview like Buddhism that seemed to be open and intolerant to everything, it was built on a rejection of other claims that it thought to be, that the Buddha, Gautama Buddha, thought to be false. You see, all religions make exclusive truth claims that exclude the others. So in the end, 
religions are making these fundamentally different claims about the nature of reality, about what is true and what is true about reality and about God and about existence. And we're left to decide what's true. And so the question I want to ask today, because the Bible makes exclusive claims about Jesus being the only way to God, I want to ask, are those claims worth believing? And I think that our passage from uh, Mark chapter 1 today is a wonderful way, a wonderful angle to take on this question, uh, because it deals with how the Bible talks about Jesus' unique spiritual authority. So if you want to follow along a little bit in your bulletin with uh, Mark chapter 1, or if you have a Bible with you, or in verses 21, uh, through 28. We're going to walk through this uh, for just a minute. So here's the setting. Jesus is um, out and about with his disciples, and he goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath. No surprise there. It's time for worship. It's time for the reading of God's word and for teaching. And Jesus uh, is teaching in the synagogue. And Mark tells us this about the people who were there listening to him. It says, he says, they were astounded at his teaching For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. See what he's telling us here? That the people, not only is their attention grabbed by the way that Jesus teaches, their hearts are grabbed. There's something unique and exclusive about the way that he delivers God's word to them. Something that they have not yet encountered. Now, we get to the fun stuff. Suddenly, Mark tells us just then, There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, okay? That's a demoniac. That is someone who is possessed by a demon. This is what Mark Mark is telling us. An evil spirit dwells in this person. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I kind of wanted to do like a demon voice for that, but I figured with a sore throat it wasn't a good idea. It might have freaked everybody out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's a lot going on in what this demon just says. Let's look at it. His questions, uh, what have you to do with us, that is us evil spirits, us who are out and about trying to cause mischief and, and, uh, and afflict people and keep them from the truth. What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? The answer, by the way, is yes. Um, and we'll get to that. Uh, but the questions of the demon betray a concern uh, regarding particularly their demise. Particularly their, their demise and their recognition that Jesus has the power over them. <clears throat> I think um, James, Jesus' little brother, must have been here. Um, this, is, this must be the scene that he was thinking of when he writes in his book in the New Testament. And he, he says, even the demons believe in God and shudder. James must have been there watching this. You see, I want to uh, just describe something for you. I'm going to go to the book of Revelation for a second. So now you can, if you weren't uncomfortable already, you can get really uncomfortable because it's going to get weird. <clears throat> but this is important stuff. Um, in the book of Revelation, which is we're kind of seeing behind the veil of what's going on in the heavenly realm as John is given these visions. And John is describing in Revelation chapter 12 um, this sort of war in heaven um, and St. Michael the Archangel cast Satan and his angels out of heaven. And uh, what it says is that um, uh, rejoice then you heavens and those who dwell in them. But then it says this, but woe, that, that is caution to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. 
Okay, so just hold that in your mind now as we go back to this passage. So we've, we've just got a glimpse into the spiritual behind the scene. What has happened in the eternal realms is that uh, this figure, this corrupt heavenly figure, has been uh, cast down, and he's now uh, gone from the heavenly realm into the earthly realm and is uh, seeking uh, out people with wrath because he knows that his time is short. He's trying to do damage. So what he's saying, what this passage is saying is Satan is working overtime, Right? Well, what's he doing? He's trying to afflict people. He's trying to keep people from the truth, right? Jesus calls him the father of all lies. Uh, Revelation calls him the great deceiver. He does anything he can to keep people from the truth. Now, in our case in Mark, it's a very explicit form of affliction because this man, for whatever reason, is actually uh, possessed by some kind of spirit, some kind of unclean spirit. Now, um, moving on in Mark's passage, Jesus rebuked him uh, and says... Be silent and come out of him. Now, the word be silent in the Greek, it literally, it literally says shut up. So, you know, this is very a nice, this translation is very soft, right? It's not, I don't think Jesus was like, be silent. You know, he said shut up and come out of him, right? He did not permit him to speak anymore. And uh, it tells us that, as is often the case, there's a sort of convulsion and a cry, and this man is then released from the spirit, and this spirit leaves after Jesus authoritative, or authoritatively commands him. Now, what's so astonishing about this is this. There was actually exorcisms that happened in the ancient Jewish world. There was, there was rituals for that, but you see, there was that was just the thing. There was purely involved rituals. You had to have the right books and the right sort of incantations and prayers, and the right people had to be there and so forth. And Jesus, in front of all these people, just says, be silent and come out of him. And it's done. And the people are amazed. You see, it's a demonstration of Jesus' absolute, unique authority in the spiritual realm. His authority over all things. So, what does it mean? Here's two questions we're going to ask. What does it mean, um, and why can Jesus do this? Uh, First, what does it mean? Um, in the Bible, in the Gospels in particular, um, the dethronement, what we could call the dethronement or the overthrow of Satan and his angels, um, is the signifying uh, factor that human redemption has become because Satan is being overthrown. That, that means people's eyes are going to start to be open to the truth of who God is. People are going to be released from bondages, from addictions, uh, from false beliefs, from everything that keeps them away from the true God of heaven and earth who so dearly loves them. So in the Gospels, Satan's dethronement signifies the beginning of human redemption, you see, and we see it right here. This man is redeemed, right? He's, he's released from the power of Satan at Jesus' word. So there's no coincidence that this happens right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark is showing us that right from the start, and he calls Jesus the Son of God in the very beginning of his Gospel, he says, right from the start, um, evil is being overthrown and something new is happening. God's light is broken to the world in, in a very powerful way. So um, the second question, why can Jesus do this, might even be a more important question. Why does Jesus have the authority to do this? Well, here's why, and here's where everything, why everything always comes to the cross. Um, why does Jesus have authority to cast out evil and unclean spirits and uh, to break people from their addictions and their bondages and so forth? Why does, he, why does he have that authority? Well, look at the cross, because on the cross, Jesus himself submit, puts himself in our place and sur- submits himself under the power of evil and death, right? He puts himself there in our place under the bondage of evil and death, but in his resurrection, he overcomes it. 
You see, he takes it into himself and destroys it in his resurrection. He overcomes it, and thus he becomes the authority. He has the authority over these things. You see, everything goes back to the redemption that happened on the cross. Everything goes back to the cross. St. Paul um, says, he's referring to Satan, and he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's a lowercase g, and it's a temporary g. Satan is temporarily the God of this world, and Jesus demonstrates that. There is a a greater God who is casting him out and dethroning him in this passage. Now, um, uh, unsurprisingly, the response of the people... Um, is this, it says, they were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, word begins uh, to spread around Galilee about this Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, What is this? Perhaps the better question is, who is this? Uh, That is a question that Jesus poses to his own disciples at one point. Who do you say that I am? Now, like I said, in our culture, it's considered intolerant to say that Jesus is the only way to God, but it would be acceptable to say that he's among the great religious leaders of the world, Gautama Buddha, uh, Mohammed, Mahatma Gandhi. That would be considered okay to say that he's in that category with all the other great religious leaders of the world as a great teacher and so forth. Now, here's the problem with that. If you try to put Jesus in a category like that, you try to put him on a shelf like that with all the others, he won't stay there. Jesus won't stay there. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus makes claims about himself Um, that if they're false, would place him in a category with lunatics far below the great religious teachers of the world. Far below the great religious teachers of the world. But if the claims he makes are true, then he's far above and greater than other religious leaders. He's something else. He's a different category altogether. Let me give you an example. There's a place in uh, Luke chapter 10 where uh, the disciples have gone out and, uh, to do some ministry and evangelization and they come back to Jesus and they say, wow, we can't believe it. Even the demons submit to us in your name. They've been casting out demons and so they're having this conversation with Jesus about spiritual warfare and so on and so forth. And Jesus is, almost seems out of the blue and here's what he says. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What? what? Who says something like that? Right? Who says something like that unless they're certifiably insane? I saw Satan fall from heaven. Either that you're certifiably insane or you're telling the truth and you are the eternal beginningless God of the universe. The unique spiritual authority of heaven and earth. You see, there's no in-between with Jesus. He can't be something in between those things. You can't just lump him into a category equal with other religious figures and other religious beliefs. In fact, Jesus' claims about who he is, the eternal God, permeates everything he says and does. Just read the Gospels closely and try and tell me that Jesus can be interpreted as just another great spiritual teacher. It's impossible. You can't do it because of the things he says about himself and the things that he does. And you can't, you also, you can't separate his teachings on love and justice and mercy and all that. You can't separate those from his fundamental claims to be God because that fundamental claim to be the eternal God pervades everything else that he teaches. It's not possible. 
Bishop N.T. Wright said this. It's beautiful. He says, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself has walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. You see, every person, every person has to make a decision about who Jesus is, whether he's pure nonsense or he is Lord and God of all. Otherwise, as N.T. Wright says, we condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between, not able to make a decision about who he is. Now, we started um, today by asking questions about uh, why it's important to believe that Jesus is God or is it worth believing that, and whether or not that it means that you have to be close-minded or intolerant toward people who believe differently. Well, here's a few conclusions that we can draw from all of this. Uh, The first is this. Christianity can only be held from a position of great humility. Christianity can only be held from a a position of great humility. Grace, the grace of God, demands this. Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and enjoy a peaceful relationship with our Heavenly Father. This fundamental fact about Christianity means that Christians have nothing to boast in in and of themselves. We have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. Our relationship with God is a gift of God that God has given us based on Jesus' perfect life, Jesus' perfect sacrifice, not our own skills, our own morality, or our own anything else. And thus we must hold the truth with an utmost humility. Now, here's another conclusion. Um, Christians must and should be willing to affirm what is good and valuable in other other religions or other belief systems. We should be able to uh, confirm, for example, um, the Buddhist belief that every living creature deserves compassion, right? That corresponds with what we believe. And believing that doesn't mean that we wholeheartedly affirm everything about Buddhism. It means that there are snippets of the truth and there are snippets of goodness in other religions. They're just missing the wholeness of Jesus. Now, uh, for another example would be the Islamic uh, belief in zakat, of charitable almsgiving based on one's wealth, right? We affirm that too. We believe that you should be generous and charitable based on the wealth that God has blessed you with. So there are good things to affirm in other religions. Now, here's the third one, and this is practical. Um, this is real world. Um, there, we should have a willingness to work alongside people of other faiths and other uh, religions and other viewpoints uh, for the well-being of our communities, right? There's a lot of wonderful interfaith organizations that are doing great work in the world, and they're Buddhists and Christians and uh, Muslims and atheists coming together to do good in their communities. That's good, okay? That's okay. That's not compromising your faith to do that. The fourth is this, and for some, of this, this, for some of us, this one will be a challenge, but you have to leave judgment to God, leave matters of judgment to God. Um, questions about what happens with people who die and don't, don't know Jesus or who were um, held in other faith with integrity or something like that, God doesn't actually give us the answers to that. Um, we work with what God has revealed to us, and that is the fact that he wants to save everyone through Jesus Christ. 
So instead of getting lost in all of these questions and concerns that only God really knows the answer to, God who is merciful and just, um, instead of that, build relationships with people and seek to have open conversations with them about their points of view, their worldviews. St. Peter wrote that we should always be ready to tell people why our hope is in Jesus. But then he says this, but always do so with gentleness and respect. Always do so with gentleness and respect. Friends, Westboro Baptist Church is not a good example of how to share Jesus with people. They're not a good example of how to share Jesus with people by holding up hateful signs. Uh, finally, this, uh, another conclusion, and this is perhaps the most important one, and that is this, that Christians actually have a duty, should be committed to sharing the exclusive truth of Jesus with gentleness and respect with other people so that those people can be reconciled with the God who loves them so tenderly. When Jesus says, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he's, maybe the image we get is him of like the bouncer standing in front of heaven's door, like you've got to get through me. That's not the image we should have. What he says when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by me, he's saying, I'm the only one who's coming for you. There's nothing else out there. There's no other redeemer out there in any other spiritual path. He says, I'm the only one who's come for you. I'm the only true God who has the authority to save you from sin and death because I gave myself over to death on your behalf. I am he for whom you were created. Let us pray. Gracious fathers, we gather here today uh, in awe, just like those in the synagogue at the authority of your son, his teaching and his power over evil and death. We thank you, Lord, for that gracious act of sending him into human flesh to redeem us from the oppressive powers of evil that uh, enslave us and to make a way out of that for us, Lord, and for everyone who would call upon his name and receive him as Lord and God. We ask that as those uh, who are his followers in the world, you would give us a great humility in the way that we hold our faith as we look out in a world full of uh, a, a whole range of religious beliefs and worldviews. Um, but we ask that uh, you would give us the grace and the truth to speak to others about the truth who is embodied, the truth who is eternal and who has the keys of life and death in his hands. We pray all this in his powerful name. Amen.